all human life is made in God's image and deserves to be preserved and treated with dignity. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Well, hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues with part three of his four-part series titled The Biblical View of Abortion. As we continue studying the issue of abortion, it's important for we as Christians to understand the flawed arguments for abortion. Satan and the culture attempt to defend abortion with many flawed arguments that frankly need to be refuted. At the same time, the Word of God offers several biblical arguments against abortion. For Christians, no matter the issue, the question is always, what does the Bible say? And the issue of abortion is no exception. As Christians, we must open our Bibles and seek the truth and let God Himself be the determiner of what is right and wrong. While the culture might be influenced by Satan, Christians must be influenced by Scripture alone. And Tom, it can't be overstated. Every believer must be well-equipped by the Word of God when it comes to the issue of abortion. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. As we have already seen in our study, you're either believing the lies of Satan in the culture or you're believing the truth of God in His Word. For us as Christians, it's so critical for us to see how the world frames its flawed arguments for abortion, to know their case. But even more importantly, we have to know the biblical arguments against abortion. What does God say about abortion? And if we're committed to Christ and His gospel, then we have to be committed to His Word on every issue, including the issue of abortion. And that starts by understanding that the Bible teaches that all human life is made in God's image and deserves to be preserved and to be treated with dignity. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher for more right now on The Word Unleashed. Now let me begin by doing as I did last time, and that is giving you a summary of what the Scripture teaches. And today, we're going to see that fill out. But let me tell you the, the basic message of Scripture on this issue, and it's this. Scripture teaches that God made man in His own image. It affirms the sanctity and personhood of all human life from conception, and it stands clearly opposed to abortion. That's what the Scripture teaches that we're seeing unfold together. I also want to mention, as I did last week at the start of this message, if you're here this morning and you have had an abortion, you have in the past defended abortion, you've encouraged others to get an abortion, perhaps even provided an abortion, but you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, let me affirm again what I affirmed last week. If you are in Christ, then your sins, all of them, including abortion, are completely forgiven, separated as far from you as the east is from the west. And as you sit here this morning, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees you as pure and spotless as His own Son. It's important for us to understand this issue, but if you're a Christian and abortion is in your past, it's not that you should feel guilt any longer. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But it's incumbent on us as God's people to be people who understand the times, and these are the times in which we live. Now, as we look at this issue so far, last week we considered these points, and if you weren't here, let me encourage you to go back and catch up because this is really foundational to what we're going to look at today. But last time we looked at the functional definitions of exactly what we're talking about. We considered the historical background both in ancient history as well as in American history. We looked at its current expression and how it's practiced exactly how it's performed. We looked at the spiritual foundations. That is, where does this come from? And in the end, it traces back, according to our Lord Jesus, to Satan himself, because in John 8:44, Jesus says, Satan is a murderer and has been a murderer from the beginning. And he mixes lies in to accomplish that murder. That was his, that was his method in the Garden of Eden. It's still his method today. Now, today I want us to focus on the biblical arguments against abortion, but first I want us to consider the flawed arguments in favor of abortion. How exactly is it defended by those who say it's acceptable? Pro-abortion, or another name they like to use is pro-choice. We'll see in a few minutes why that's not really a good name, but those who are pro-abortion believe that a woman has the right to control her own body and its reproductive rights, and that includes the choice to continue or to terminate a pregnancy. But on what basis do they make this argument? Well, let me give you the most common arguments used by pro-abortion proponents for abortion. I'm just going to walk through them quickly and give you a quick refutation of each. First of all, the first argument that's very common is this, it's been accepted and legal in Anglo-American history and law for hundreds of years. This is revisionist history, but it's a common argument used today. In 1973, Justice Blackmun, who wrote the majority opinion in Roe, used this very argument. Where did it come from? Well, I noted for you last time, Villanova law professor Joseph W. Della Pena wrote a book entitled Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History. As I mentioned last week, he supports abortion. But he, as a lawyer, wanted to set the legal record straight in terms of this sort of recreation, this revisionist history. And so he builds an extensive case. I think the book has some 8,500 footnotes to show from legal precedent that abortion was a crime for 800 years until the later 20th century. Delapena summarizes his findings in a magazine entitled First Things like this, quote, the new orthodox history, don't miss that expression, the new orthodox history of abortion posits four theses. One, that abortion was always a common practice in human history. Two, that voluntary early abortions were not crimes until the 19th century. Three, that the 19th century abortion statutes were designed to protect the life of the mother rather than the life of the child. And four, that the statutes were enacted through a conspiracy of men to accomplish several nefarious purposes to subordinate women." End quote. He continues, 
This new orthodox history was developed primarily by law professor Cyril Means, Jr. in the late 1960s. At the time, Means was general counsel of what was then the National Association for the Reform of Abortion Laws. He developed this history as part of a deliberate strategy for overturning the abortion laws then in place in the American states. Blackman, Justice Blackman, took his history of abortion in Roe v. Wade directly from Means' work, citing him seven times, end quote. Now, that's the new revisionist history. In contrast to that, Delapena writes in his book, quote, the tradition of treating abortion as a crime was unbroken through nearly 800 years of English and American history until the reform movement of the later 20th century, end quote. So, folks, the idea that abortion was widely accepted and legal for hundreds of years is revisionist history. Don't believe it. It was created to sell abortion to the American people. A second flawed argument for abortion is that it's a matter of personal privacy guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Justice Blackman argued in Roe v. Wade that there is, quote, a right of privacy, end quote, contained within the Ninth and the Fourteenth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution and that that right of privacy, quote, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Now, I challenge you to read the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution, and you will discover nothing about a right to privacy. In fact, in his dissenting opinion in 1973, Justice Byron White wrote this, I find nothing in the language or history of the Constitution to support the court's judgment. The court simply fashions and announces a new constitutional right for pregnant mothers, end quote. Justice Alito, writing recently in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade, wrote this, not only was there no support for such a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion had long been a crime in every single state. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages, end quote. A third argument that's presented in favor of abortion is that it's a woman's right to choose. This is the feminist argument, but it's not really an argument at all. It simply begs the question. If it's, it's not a woman's right to choose if the fetus is not her tissue, if she's merely the host for another human person. So this isn't an argument. It's really just a statement of propaganda. Number four, it's part of a woman's body and therefore fully at her discretion. Scientifically, that is simply not true. The embryo or the fetus is not part of her body. It is a genetically unique organism. At conception, 46 genes combined, 23 from the mother, 23 from the father, and the result is a unique individual. The child's blood is its own blood. It may even be a different type than its mother. It has its own brain, heart, fingerprints. Listen carefully. Every cell in that embryo's body has a different genetic fingerprint than every cell in the woman's body. 
from fertilization. It directs its own development under the, the creative hand of God. It's attached to her body, but it is not part of her body. Number five, and this is a new argument. When I was younger, the argument was, well, we're not even sure it's life until a certain point. That argument isn't made anymore. They've changed it, and this is the way it reads now. Biological life begins at conception, but personhood begins at some later point. Now, pro-abortionists offer various theories about when personhood begins. For example, the UK Warnock Committee in 1984 said personhood begins 14 days after conception. Others say, no, it's at implantation. Others at quickening. That was a common medieval view. At the capacity to feel pain. Some say, no, personhood comes at viability outside the womb. That's really the position the justices took in Roe v. Wade. Some, many federal courts say it, it comes at birth. And tragically, the former bioethicist for Princeton University teaching our future leaders says, really, personhood doesn't come till self-consciousness. Think about that. Think about when you were self-conscious. And you can see where this will lead in the future. Now, I'll discuss the biblical perspective on personhood shortly, but it doesn't even stand up scientifically because here's what, here's what the standard text on embryology says. This is Patton's Foundations of Embryology, quote, the time of fertilization represents the starting point in the life history of the individual, end quote. That's not a Christian perspective. That's the standard text for embryologists. Here's another argument that's given in favor of abortion. If abortion is outlawed, women will be harmed by illegal abortions. Now, there are a number of problems with that argument, but let me give you the two greatest ones. Number one, first, the maternal death rate from abortion actually fell precipitously between the 1930s and 1970 before abortion became illegal. Why? because of antibiotics. So this is, a, this is not a valid argument. Also, this argument ignores the 100% mortality rate for children that are aborted, whether legally or illegally. Another argument, and this one's a shocking one, this is a new one that's been added recently, but it's out there, and it's this. Abortion is morally preferable to adoption. Yeah, you ought to gasp at that. That's shocking, but this is out there. Frame writes this, speaking of this trend, he says, the fashionable ideologues are now trying to discredit adoption, raising images of wicked stepfathers and child molestation, even though most adoptions work out well. They fear unbelievably that if adoption becomes more widely accepted, abortion may be discouraged, and that, in their way of thinking, would be a bad result, end quote. And if you doubt this is happening, let me just encourage you to go to the Harvard Medical School website. I was there recently within the last couple of weeks. I read an article in which this is exactly what is taught, that it is way too simplistic to think that the solution to, to mothers who have children they don't want is to just give them up for adoption. Look at all of the problems with adoption, and essentially it argues implicitly that abortion is superior morally as opposed to adoption. Here's a final argument that's given 
It's morally wrong, but it's a decision each woman must make. Over the last 40 years, most Americans have come to agree with that statement. How has that happened? Well, it's not an accident. It's a deliberate strategy. You see, those who are truly pro-abortion, I mean those who are really trying to sell abortion, do not constitute a majority of Americans. So the only way to sell their position is to increase their numbers. And how do you increase your numbers? The the pro-abortion movement decided not to try to convert everyone to being in favor of abortion, but instead to convince most Americans to affirm that it's each person's right to choose. So they gave up the pro-abortion language for the pro-choice language. But folks, choice is not an inalienable right. By law, my freedom of choice ends when it risks another person's rights to life and liberty. R.C. Sproul, in his excellent little book on abortion, wrote this, It is this principle of self-determination, having a say in my own condition and future, that is brutally denied to every unborn aborted child, end quote. So those are the arguments that are presented. But now we come to the key issue for us as believers, and that is the biblical correction. What exactly is the truth? The question for us always has to be, what does the Bible say? And so we're going to begin by looking at the biblical arguments, and then we're going to look at is what I'm teaching you the Scripture is saying what the church has historically taught the Scriptures are saying. So we're going to take it in two parts. Let's first of all look at what the Scriptures teach, the arguments from Scripture. I'm going to give you several. We're going to work our way through them. I wish I had more time. I didn't want to take another week or two on this issue, but it's important for me to lay them out, so let me do this. Here's the first, biblical argument against abortion. All human life is made in God's image and deserves to be preserved and treated with dignity. All human life is made in God's image. Look back at Genesis chapter 1. This is where it begins. You remember this, verse 26. On the sixth day of creation, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And, and then he does it in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, understand that this concept of the image of God is a complicated concept, but it includes more than just the immaterial part of us. As one writer puts it, Frame, in in his book, the image of God pertains to all aspects of man's being, physical included. God doesn't have a body, but He stamped us body and soul with His image. We are made in His image. Now, what's interesting about that is this becomes crucial in chapter 5. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and He blessed them, and He named them man. He named the human race man or mankind in the day when they were created. Now, watch verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he, and you'll notice the marginal note there, he begot in his own likeness according to his image, and named him Seth. 
So understand what's going on here. Seth received the image of God from Adam and Eve through procreation. Notice Adam begot. Now you tell me he begot Seth in his own image. When could that have happened? When was Adam involved in the process of Seth's birth? Only one time, and that was at conception. And so he gained the image of God through the procreation uh, process that God had created at conception because that was the only time Adam had any contribution to the process of his development and birth. So this means that the image of God continues to be passed to future generations at conception. Now, after the fall, man still retains God's image. In Genesis 9, we're told that capital punishment has to happen because man is made in God's image. In James 3, James says we shouldn't curse people because man is made in God's image. So this continues after the fall, and we read it just a few minutes ago in our Scripture reading in Psalm 8. God made man in such a way that he has this exalted position just below God, or it could be translated the angels, but either way, both are true. We're made in the image of God. All human life. And that image comes to us at conception. Second argument, God gives human life, and He alone has the right to take it. God is the one who gives life. Foundationally, this is true. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. But it's not just Adam and Eve. Job, in Job 33, 4, says this, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So whenever life begins, and we know when life begins, at the moment of conception, Job says the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In Acts 17, 25, at Mars Hill, Paul said, God Himself gives to all people life and breath. So, as the giver of life, God alone has the right to end human life. Deuteronomy 32, 39, I, I am He. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord, Yahweh, kills and makes alive. It's His prerogative as God. In 2 Kings 5, 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, listen to this, Am I God to kill? And the obvious answer to that rhetorical question is not. No, absolutely not. I don't have that right. I am not God. It is not my right to take a life. By the way, just as an aside, let me briefly comment on the issue of contraception. This is a question that is a dividing one among believers. Understand this. Most contraceptives do not end the life that has been conceived. They prevent conception. There are a few methods of contraception, like the IUD, for example, the interuterine device, that do end life that has begun, but most of them do not. So, so all those forms of contraception that do not end the life are a legitimate cause of Christian liberty. They're an issue of conscience that each Christian has to decide for his own. The Bible does not say thou shalt or thou shalt not. Let's move on to a third argument. 
God condemns and punishes all wrongful taking of human life. Even pro-abortionists admit that the embryo and the fetus are human life. What they deny is that the unborn child is a person. In a moment, we're going to see the Scripture says they are persons, but even if, even if the fetus and the embryo were only human life, it would be morally wrong and a crime because God condemns it. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, The Biblical View of Abortion. Tom will bring you part four next time, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.